verse number 1, Genesis 4. In the same way that Americans remember 9-11, you say 9-11 and uh, everyone knows what you're talking about. I'm talking about September 11th, 2001, when the attack happened uh, in Manhattan, South Manhattan, the World Trade Center. So it is in the nation of Japan when you mention the date March 11th. You didn't even have to give the year. The year was 2011. But March 11th there is like saying 9-11 here because that was a day of great calamity. There was a very powerful earthquake off of the northeastern uh, coast, about 9 on the Richter scale. And amazingly enough, not a lot of permanent damage was done because of that massive earthquake because of the building codes in Japan. But the resulting tsunami was so devastating on the coastlines that thousands, above 10,000, lost their lives and others still unaccounted for. And it was on that day, March 11, 2001, that uh, a, a mayoral candidate in uh, Otsuki, uh, Japan, in the Iwate Pre uh, Prefecture uh, in Japan, he was out on the streets. He was a mayoral candidate. He was going to give a speech out on the streets. And the news article I read said that the quake hit suddenly, jolted that town for three solid minutes. And for a, an earthquake of that magnitude, for that long, three minutes is an eternity. And so the people, of course, were greatly shaken. And uh, then finally the shaking stopped. And I, as I said, most of the buildings were still intact because of the building codes in Japan. They're prepared to handle large quakes. But this man had some uh, important insight. He said, if a quake of that magnitude has occurred, then we're in serious trouble because that's going to trigger a tsunami. And he forgot all about his speech. And he began to use his bullhorn to warn everyone to get to high ground because he said water would engulf the town in 10 to 15 minutes. This man's name was uh, Yutaka Ikarigawa, a mayoral candidate. And uh, he began to urge people immediately. And he uh, saw someone who was uh, physically hobbled, not able to uh, help uh, move fast enough themselves. And he literally carried this person on his back to high ground to escape what was coming. But by his own testimony today, he says his warnings fell upon deaf ears. That people heard him and they looked at him as if he was a little overexcited. People saw him speaking with an urgency, an urgent tone. And uh, they were calling him basically the boy who cried wolf. And sure enough, he, as he said... Within 20 minutes' time, this massive wall of water came ashore, and when it was all said and done, 1,600 were either confirmed dead or still missing. And that town was all but destroyed by the floodwaters. They're still rebuilding to this day. And when he talks about it in this interview, he said, certainly I should have talked much more forcefully. Karagawa said, I really regret not doing so. And he said that in kind of a personal effacement, but the truth is that he did what he could do. He couldn't make people listen to him. And I mentioned that example because you would have thought as he was speaking on that bullhorn with grave urgency in a loud voice, about the calamity was, that was just about to come, that people would have had a mind to listen because of very recent events, namely a 9.0 earthquake. And I thought about that because that's very similar to the circumstance we're going to be reading about in Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, the one speaking is God. And the one hearing is a man by the name of Cain who had just made an offering to God. 
This was what could be called a teachable moment. Not only for Cain, but for all of humanity at that time. Especially in light of recent events, namely the fall. But God's words to this man and the men of his generation fell upon deaf ears. Why? Because God was speaking to a carnal man. A carnal man. To be a carnal man was now the new normal for the human race. Say, what is a carnal man? A carnal man is someone who is only mindful of the things of the flesh and not mindful of the things of the spirit. I'm going to preach a sermon tonight. I call God's word to a carnal man out of Genesis 4, beginning at verse 1, where it reads, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the progress of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not uh, be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Can't call me right now. You would think that missionaries would figure out what time it was and say, you know what, he's probably preaching right now. So, anyway. Okay. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass that when Uh, They were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand, When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond upon the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain... Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Father, we pray for the grace of God to prevail, that you would deliver us, Lord, from the carnal mind, That we would be people who could hear your voice and respond, especially in the urgency of the hour. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God's word to a carnal man. Let me talk to you first of all about the rise of the carnal man. Because like I said, in this particular text, God had a purpose in doing what he did. This was meant to be a teaching moment, not only for this man Cain, but for everyone else in humanity, including Cain's parents, Cain's brother, anyone else who would listen. Because an offering had been made to God. And God was now able to make a statement. God was now able to teach regarding the acceptable offering. And his point was to talk about an offering for the sins of humanity. 
He saw the offerings that had been made, and he understood that one of them represented a, a precedent. One of them represented something that would be acceptable, acceptable regarding the nature of any offering. You see, one man was a farmer. That was Cain. And he brought an offering, the first fruits of the produce that he had produced. The other man, Abel, was a shepherd. He had flocks, and so he brought the first, a firstling of his flock, and, and it's fat, the Bible says, and brought that to God as an offering. And God accepted, God recognized, God noticed Abel's offering, but not Cain's offering. Not because of Abel. Not because it was Abel's offering, but because of the nature of the offering. He was accepting and recognizing that offering because it was pointing to something. It was pointing to the greater offering that would come in due time when the seed of the woman would come and bruise the serpent's head, fulfilling the very prophecy that he had just spoken. And uh, he was pointing to that offering as an example. It was a teachable moment. He accepted the one offering and not the other because one offering was about the blood. It was a lamb and it was do, having to do with the blood of the lamb. And so this was God's purpose. This was his intent. Here are two offerings that were made and he sees the two and he sees one man come who is the farmer and uh, this uh, man was bringing the pr produce uh, that was the, uh, the result of his own efforts. His own sweat, the sweat of his own brow, as it were. He tilled the ground. Uh, he cultivated the plants. And now they had become fruitful. And he was bringing that fruit, thinking that it would somehow be pleasing to God. But God says, you know what? All this is is a testimony to man's own ability, man's own strength, man in his carnal nature. But then he sees the lamb. And the blood that was shed in order to make that sacrifice. That's why it says, and the fat. And he says, I'm recognizing this offering. Because now I can make a point. But the point is that Cain was oblivious to the spiritual truth. God didn't speak to Abel. There's no record in the text that he spoke to Abel. God spoke to Cain. He was reaching out to Cain and wanted to begin with this man to give him spiritual insight regarding the nature of the offering. But this man was oblivious to spiritual truth. He didn't want to hear it. Why? Because he's carnal. He was a carnal man. Carnal man, like I said, was now the new normal in the world because of the fall. You say, well, what again is a carnal man? Romans 8 describes it this way. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That means hostility. That the carnal mind is actually hostile toward God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And this is borne out again in the test of this offering. It says, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and, he, and the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And that's when God had his conversation. We're not told why they offered. All we are told is that Cain offered first. He was a farmer. He brought produce. Abel was a shepherd, and he brought that little lamb. Both men offered their offering to God in good faith. I believe that their motives were at least uh, uh, honorable. That they were trying to do the right thing. 
But God saw Abel's offering and said, there's something here that I can work with. But he said about Cain's offering, you know what? That's not uh, acceptable. That's not what's needed here. And he rejected Cain's offering, but it wasn't personal. He wasn't rejecting Cain, per se. He was rejecting what the offering he made represented. It was about the nature of the offering. He made an offering of the produce that he had made. And again, it was about his own effort. It was about the sweat of his own brow. As if somehow uh, he wanted to impress God with what he had done. Never mind that it was the miracle of the seed that God had created that made his uh, efforts worth anything. But God was saying, you know what, this is not the kind of offering that is needed. This is not going to do anything for you. But Abel's offering involved the shedding of the blood of a lamb. This had nothing to do with personal revelation. The Bible doesn't say that Abel... Uh, prayed about it and decided he was going to give a lamb. He gave a lamb because that's all he had. He was a shepherd. Cain gave what he gave because that's all he had. He was a farmer. But God looked at the two offerings and said, this one provides a teachable moment. This one provides me an opportunity to bring instruction regarding the acceptable offering. And when he tried to explain that to Cain... Cain didn't want to hear it. You see, that word respect, he respected Abel's offering, is the Hebrew word sha'ah, which means to gaze or to behold or to consider. And it just simply means that he took notice of Abel's offering. And when he tried to speak to Cain about it, his words fell on deaf ears because they belonged to a carnal man. You see, God had created man in his own image. He created Adam. He would walk with Adam, the Bible says, in the cool of the day. He would speak to Adam. Adam would speak to him. This would be God's intended relationship, not only with Adam and with Eve, but all of their descendants forever and ever. None of them were even meant to die. That's what man was made for. But then sin came into the world. And here was an opportunity where the God of creation wanted to communicate with his creation, even though it had fallen into sin. He sees the two offerings, the one with the produce, that one doesn't do anything that's of any value. Ah, but the one with the blood, the lamb, that's an opportunity for me to speak and to bring clarity about redemption But his words meant nothing to the carnal mind. Cain's reaction was immediate and it was strong. The Bible says he became angry and his countenance fell. Countenance is the way your face looks. And his countenance fell. Say, well, what does that mean? Basically, if you boil it down, what it's talking about is his attitude. We all understand attitude. He got angry and he copped an attitude. God was trying to explain to him, you know what? This is about the nature of the sacrifice, son. You see, the produce thing, that's just the sweat of your own brow. That'll never save you. But this blood of the lamb thing, you see, that points to something even greater. But he wasn't hearing it. He got angry because carnal people get angry. And his countenance fell, meaning he copped an attitude. The Bible doesn't say that God overheard Cain say something or see Cain do something. All it says is he got angry and his countenance fell and God spoke to him. Meaning God noticed immediately his attitude. In 1 Samuel 16, it says, The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward, 
but the Lord looks at the heart. God sees our hearts. He sees our attitudes. Just a word to the wise for parents. Attitude matters when you discipline kids. It's not just about what your child does. It's not just about what your child says. And uh, if you're a parent and you're wise, you're going to teach your children regarding what they do and what they say. But if you really want to help them out, then hold them accountable for their attitude. And you know how you can tell their attitude? Their countenance. Their cup and an attitude. Well, I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. Yeah, well, you have a stinky attitude. Get your attitude under control. God sees the attitude. And he spoke to Cain about his attitude. He said, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and his desire is for you, but you should rule over it. He's saying, you know what? Don't get mad. Don't cop an attitude. I'm just trying to tell you how to do right. I'm just trying to tell you how to do something that's going to work. I'm just trying to help you, not only you, but all of your brethren. He tried to teach Cain about why he took notice of Abel's offering and not his. But the fact is that Cain was not interested because he was a carnal man. The carnal man is oblivious to God and he's oblivious to godliness because the carnal man only cares about himself and about his needs. Now, he may claim otherwise. And I say he meaning all people, he or she. The carnal person may claim otherwise. Oh, no, no, I just don't care about me. I just love everybody. Well, especially my sweetie. But the truth is, the carnal man cares only about himself. And if you deny him or her, you will get the same response from the carnal man or carnal woman that you got from Cain, meaning that he will get angry. He went to have a word with his brother, his little brother, Abel. We don't know what their conversation was. We don't know how it escalated to murder. All it says is that Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know, for I am, am I my brother's keeper? The carnal man is a murderer and a liar. Say, well, I'm no murderer. Are you a liar? Well, maybe I've lied. Everybody lies, but I'm no murderer. Well, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Before that, he said, you heard that you shall not commit adultery. But if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart already. And then he contrasts that with murder. He says, you've heard that you should not murder. And if you do, you're in danger of judgment. But I say, if you are angry in your heart against your brother, it's the same thing. Cain murdered Abel because murder was in his heart. 
Because when the carnal man is denied, he becomes angry and he becomes resentful of anyone who threatens what he thinks he deserves. Now, there's a real irony about the carnal man that is brought out here in this text. And that is the carnal man, the Bible says, lives according to the flesh. What that means is according to his body, according to the needs of his body, that this life in this physical world is all that's really important to him at all. It's the only thing that really matters is this world. But God points out something to Cain about being a carnal man, and that is that when you live only for this world, you actually cease to belong to this world. And that's ironic because Christians feel like the stranger in the earth. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If the earth belongs to the Christian in the end. But the carnal man, the carnal woman, who lives only for themselves, who lives only for this world, for their flesh, their physical person alive in this world, the truth is that they become vagabonds and fugitives in this world, even though they claim the world for themselves. In verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Then uh, when you till the ground, it should no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. The carnal man is the one who is the stranger on the earth. And it's ironic because the carnal person is the one who's only living for this world. But you know what? You're a carnal man, you're a carnal woman just living for yourself. The word of God means nothing to you. It's just about this life. In the end, friend, you're going to be cast out of this world. Because the one that you reject is the one who made it. And Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. Christ will return. He will seize this earth by force from the usurpers. And then he'll set up his kingdom for who? The meek, his own followers. He told a parable when he walked the earth about a vineyard and how it was leased to certain caretakers and how these caretakers decided that the vineyard was going to be theirs. And when the owner sent uh, people to collect, uh, he, they killed them. And then he said, I'm going to send my own son. Surely they'll respect my son. And these caretakers said, ah, this is the son. Let's kill him. And then his inheritance will be ours. He was a parable. It was a story. But he was talking about this world about those who have rebelled against him and have seized control of the world, thinking that it's theirs to have, but it isn't. They're the ones who are the strangers. They're the ones who are the vagabonds. They're the ones who are the fugitives in the world. And the day will come when he will seize it by force. And it will belong to those who follow him. And that's the irony. You're living for this world, and not even this world is yours. This is another interesting insight from this text because it says in verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. Let me stop right there because inevitably it says he knew his wife, he's married. And you're saying, well, you know what? Who did he marry? Let me stop right there and answer the question so that you hear everything else I have to say. Because it said, you know, Adam and Eve had kids, Cain, and then Abel, and now he's married? Who did he marry? Her name was Wanda. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not sure what her name was. 
But the point is, is that by the time he got married, there would have been about 10,000 or so people on the earth. So how do you know that? Because previously it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and they had sons and daughters. In other words, you know, this is the fast forward. And by this point in history, we get certain names of certain kids that didn't mean they were the only kids they had. By that time, there were quite a few. So he would have uh, been able to get a date and get married. And so he did. And so it says he went out from the presence of the Lord and his wife conceived and bore Enoch, not the Enoch that walked with God, another one, the previous one. And this is what it says. He, Cain, built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And so this is the first time that a city shows up in Scripture. The first time a city is mentioned in human history. And it was built by the vagabond. It was built by the fugitive, the carnal man. Which gives us a very unique insight into the city. Do you know that most people in the world lived outside of cities? until the mid-20th century. That means that of the two or three billion people at the time that lived in this, on this planet, the majority of them didn't live in cities. They lived in rural areas, small communities. But in the middle of the 20th century, it went the other direction. More people in the world lived in cities, and that's the way it is today, than live outside of cities. You say, well, wasn't that, wasn't that something to be expected? Isn't that better? I don't know. Because when you trace back what a city is, the man who started the first city was Cain. Why? Because the ground was cursed to him. He used to be a farmer. He was the man of the soil. He used to till the ground and it would produce for him. But God said, the ground's not going to produce for you anymore. So how are you going to eat? He needed proximity to other people. And so he started a city, brought people together so he could barter for food that he could not grow himself so that he could survive. Is it no surprise that cities are centers for the carnally minded? The bigger the city, it seems the more carnal the people. You know, it's an amazing thing. Some years ago in the Prescott Conference, Pastor Mitchell preached the first sermon of the conference on Monday night about large cities. This was before I came to Las Vegas. Pastor Fred was there, and he was stirred. That's why Gary and Lisa went to Chicago from Las Vegas, New Mexico. Of course, they had already been to Mexico City, the biggest, and God did move there. But that was the understanding is, you know what? We need to go where the people are. We need to cast the net where the fish are. There are millions and millions of people there. Surely God would move. But you know what? As we have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars as a fellowship on couples going to big cities, Chicago, the New York City area, uh, for years, Houston. Houston finally broke through in some of the churches. But for years, some very good men were sent into these places, Houston and Chicago, that come to mind. Lots of money spent. Very little impact. George and Yolanda Cruz went to Asuncion, Paraguay, the, the major city in the nation of Paraguay, some two million people. And when he took over that church, it was a little building right smack in the middle of downtown. And they were completely swallowed up. You could walk right by the building, not even see it. 
So we, we shut that down. We went into a, a suburb called San Lorenzo, about 200,000 people, uh, a lot of uh, uh, residential area, people walking around. And that church is doing well today. Why? Because there's something about cities. It doesn't mean we ignore them. It doesn't mean that uh, those people are doomed per se. But this is a certain reality about cities. Again, till the middle of the 20th century, most people in the world did not live in cities. But then they gravitated to these cities, take the technology boom. And cities are very difficult places to preach the gospel because of the dominance of the carnal mind. Cain started the first city. Finally tonight, the only hope for the carnal man is the sacrifice of the blood. That was God's point. But Cain would not hear him. God accepted Abel's offering, not because it was Abel's, but because it was a sheep whose blood was shed as a sacrifice. And God was saying, you know what? This is something you need to pay attention to. Because in Hebrews 9, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Talking about the shed blood of Jesus. In Matthew 26, the night of the Last Supper, Jesus spoke to his disciples with the cup saying, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It's about the blood. It's about the blood of the Lamb. It's about God giving his only begotten son. It's not something that we do that can save us. There's nothing we can do to save us. It's only what God can do that can save us. And he was trying to teach Cain this. He was trying to give this man revelation. He was trying to teach him about the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The seed of the woman who would come and bruise the serpent's head. The one who would come to reverse the curse that came from Cain's own father, Adam. But he wouldn't hear him. Because he was blinded by his carnal nature. He was a carnal man. He took everything personally. When he wasn't accepted, his offering wasn't accepted, he felt humiliated before God and man. And when he killed his brother Abel, he was lashing out at God. And it still happens now. These people who are these serial killers or mass murderers, killing people they don't even know. Why? They're not angry at those people. They don't even know them. It's the heart of Cain lashing out against his creator and killing Abel in the process. The truth is that if given the chance, Cain would have crucified Christ. Because in the end, that's what the carnal nature is all about. God wanted to make the point that in the fullness of time, the Lamb of God would come into the world. In the fullness of time, Jesus would come and become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He wanted to make the point that we as fallen men and women could never become right with God by anything that we do. But if we would simply yield and allow God to do it for us, then the shed blood of Jesus could save us. It says in Romans 6, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. 
But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and unrighteousness uh, to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and uh, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. In other words, having been released from the control of the carnal man, we become a new man in Christ. That is what Abel's offering was all about. It says in Romans 8, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God that we can actually come into relationship. This is what Genesis 4 is all about. God speaking to Cain. He didn't speak to Abel. He spoke to Cain. He had accepted Abel's sacrifice, not because it was Abel's, but because of the blood, because of what it pointed to. And the one he wanted to teach was not Abel, but Cain. Because it's about redemption and it's about relationship. But Cain was a carnal, mind, a carnal man. Carnality was the new normal. And you know what? The day came when every carnal man and woman was wiped out in a global judgment because they were oblivious to spiritual truth. You read about it in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. There was only one family that was left alive. His name was Noah. He had three sons. They and their wives were spared. They obeyed God. They listened to God. They valued God's word. And they lived. But the rest of humanity, the rest of the carnal men and women, were destroyed. And this is what Jesus said as I close in Matthew 24. As the days of Noah were so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. In the same way that this world was filled with carnal men and women, oblivious to God, oblivious to godliness. They were just going about their daily business. They didn't care anything at all about what God was saying to Noah. And suddenly a flood came and swept them all away, destroyed that world. We don't know anything about that world except what we read about in the Bible. They were wiped away. Jesus said, so it will be when he comes back. Because we live in a world, friend, where most people live in cities. And our world is carnal. Our world is oblivious. Our world is hostile toward God. And we preach this gospel and we believe God to save as many as will be saved. I believe many, many, many more will be saved before he comes. But make no mistake about it. Those who will not be saved. You're sitting here tonight. You're a carnal man. You're a carnal woman. You live for yourself. What I'm saying goes in one ear and out the other. Service after service after service. 
The day will come, friend, when the trumpet will sound. You'll be going about your business, and Jesus will come again. And those who hear him will be with him. And those who do not, those who will not, will be swept away. Let's bow our heads for a moment tonight. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This man, in the year 2011, standing on the streets of his city, ready to make a political speech, but then all of a sudden, devastating earthquake. And he knew immediately what that meant, that the danger was not past, but something far more dangerous was about to happen, a wall of water coming from the ocean that would destroy everything that was in the lowland. He began to scream into the speaker, You've got to leave now. You've got to get to high ground. You've got to get to high ground. And those who heard him lived. But those who refused to hear him perished. And in this text, God is speaking to a man. He's saying, son, what you do on your own can't help you. But if you'll consider the sacrifice of Abel, that'll point you in the right direction. You can't save yourself, but I'll save you. If you're here tonight, friend, and you're not a Christian, you've never been born again, you've never been saved, this world is going to perish. You're going to perish. You're going to die. There's no way around that. No one's ever beat the rap. You're going to die, and then you're going to face judgment because we're sinners. Your own heart tells you you're a sinner. But God doesn't want you to be judged. He wants to save you. He doesn't want you to have to stand before a holy God on your own merits because you don't have any merit. You need mercy. You need forgiveness. You need redemption. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's God's invitation to you right now, right where you're sitting. And you'd say, you know what, Pastor Ray, I know that's me, and I want to be saved. I want to know that I'm forgiven. I want to know that I'm saved. Every head bowed, right where you're sitting, just put your hand up so I can see it right now. Just put it up right now. I'll see it. You can put it down. Right where you're sitting, just let it go up. You know your sins aren't forgiven. You know Christ is not your Savior. He's never been your Savior. You're a carnal man. You're a carnal woman. You live for yourself. It's all about this world. It's about your needs. Anybody that you claim to care about, it's only because of what they do for you. You're saying, you know what? I don't want to perish. I want to be saved. Lift your hand. Lift it up. Maybe at one time you were saved, but you're so far away from God. You're backslidden. You want to turn... (coughs) I'm going to turn from your backsliding. Lift your hand right now. Lift it up. I'm talking to God's people. Friend, we live in a world that is carnal. People live according to the flesh. They're oblivious to God and to godliness. Here is the God of heaven reaching down, speaking to this man. And this carnal man will not hear him. In the end, that's the difference between those who were saved and not saved. Noah listened, and the rest of the world wouldn't. And like I say, we know nothing about that world because it was wiped away. And the same thing is going to happen again. Let's stand. We're going to sing in worship tonight. This altar's open for God's people. Friend, you're not saved. You're backslidden. This is not a game. It's not a joke. One day you'll remember every word that I've I've ever said sitting here in this church, but it'll be too late. One drop of blood that day was enough for humanity. And on a hill 
the victory wrought. The price was paid with his precious blood. I wasn't there when the nails ripped through his hands. I wasn't there when the blood fell to the sand. I wasn't there when they hung him on a tree, but I'll be there when they bow at his feet. One drop of blood that day was enough for humanity and on a hill the victory rocked the prize was paid with his precious blood I wasn't there when they pierced his precious side I wasn't there when he hung his head and died. I wasn't there when they mocked and scorned my king. But I'll be there when they bow at his feet. One drop of blood that day. Was enough for humanity, and on a hill the victory rocked. The prize was paid with His precious blood. Let's worship God.